like community colleges are a hub of like, you know, a particular collection of diversities, right? And for me personally, um, you know, I am kind of like this returning student or adult student, you know, this mm-hmm. wasn't like my first degree. And so, um, like, I'm passionate about this because it was such a good experience for me. And it did, you know, lead me to this new career and help me to, you know, discover who I was going to become next, essentially. Hello and welcome to What Do We Call This, a CLS Alumni Society podcast that aims to center voices, conversations, and experiences, often left out of the narrative around immersive cross-cultural exchanges. My name is Miriam Tinberg. I did CLS Arabic in Amman, Jordan in 2012, and then did an ETA Fulbright in Rabat, Morocco in 2014 to 2015. And my name is Ashley Rivenbark, and I did CLS Chinese in Hangzhou, China in 2014. Hello, my name is Naika Pierre. I did the CLS China program in Suzhou in 2014. I'm the current producer of the What Do We Call This podcast series. And my name is Gabriel Carrillo. I did CLS Turkish in Baku, Azerbaijan in 2018. And I am the current editor of the podcast series. Um, maybe a place we can start is you both can introduce yourselves um, and then introduce the organization that you're repping today, but also just talk about your, where did you go for CLS? What year? Sort of what's your linguistic background? Any of, that, any of that bio stuff? Uh, I can go first. So I'm Jordan. I'm originally from California, from Oakland, and I'm a community college student transfer from Berkeley City College. I was studying international relations there. That's where I first um, got into Arabic, and I did CLS in 2018 in Morocco. So Morocco was great. It's such a great country and the weather was great. Our language partners were great. The host families were amazing. And so it was such a great experience that really taught me a lot. And so now I'm in New York. I go to Columbia and I study astrophysics. I'm Jessica. Um, I was in the 2018 CLS program to Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan. Um, I studied the Russian language there. Um, I'm also a community college transfer student from Portland Community College to Portland State University. And I recently graduated uh, this past year and I'm getting started um, in the US government uh, and just beginning my career there. Yeah, we always like to get a sense of if people are using the languages in their careers now or studies now. It sounds like Jessica, at least from the bio that you sent, there there are some ways that you're practicing Russian, but I would love to know from both of you sort of if you are able to, to flex that muscle these days? Yeah, actually, I use my Russian on a daily, a near daily, daily basis at work. It's, it's like, it just feels like such an awesome thing because I've been studying Russian for the past few years now, and now I get to use it in a way that impacts like specifically my local community. So I work for the state of Oregon. I'm a bilingual office specialist, um, and I connect Oregon's um, with benefit programs. And I specifically work with the Russian speaking population. And so it's just, gosh, I, I've, I've, already, I've only been working here for like a few weeks now, but I've already learned so much more, especially, you know, in the field of diversity, you know, working in local state government, it's like completely you know, brought together my sort of CLS and a broad experience and also made me rethink things um, just, you know, here in the States of what diversity means. So I'm glad you guys are doing this podcast. Yeah, just really, I think that's a really interesting example of how one can take their language and CLS or any of these other scholarship experiences. Like I would never um, have thought that that was 
a, a pathway after surely not when I was beginning these scholarships. I didn't even know that those types of jobs existed and yeah. stateside and using the language daily and working with a specific subset of the population. So especially for a language that's less commonly, I mean, I guess all of ours are less commonly taught, but Russian. I'm, now I'm like, what's the Russian population in Portland, Oregon? Like, you know, nice. that's, that's very interesting. So that's a very cool um, uh, pathway and congratulations on beginning this job a couple weeks in. Thanks. And I'll, I'll just pop in and say that Russian is the um, third most common language in Oregon. So wow. it's right after Spanish. Yeah. And Jordan, what about you? So you're doing astrophysics, right? Did I get, <laughs> I feel like I yeah. got that wrong. No, that's right. Um, I wish I was making an impact like, like Jessica. That's, that's awesome. Okay. Let's not downplay <laughs> what you're doing here. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I mean, as far as, as far as Arabic goes, I thought it would be easier to connect with a lot of native speakers, especially being in New York. But it seems like it seems like you have to actively go seek that out. And you know that there's nothing wrong with that. But I just find I'm able to do that less than I thought um, I was going to be able to. I just started working in the Bronx as an EMT, so hopefully, hopefully I'll meet some populations, you know, in that general area that that I can use the language with. But other than that, it's just classes. Okay. So you're still, so you're still taking Arabic, right? Formally in, in class. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So not making an impact at all. Not, not that EMTs do any sort of significant work in the community. My gosh, we were so excited to have you both on like what amazing work that you both are doing. Um, I know that I, I'm really curious what for both of you, why Russian and why Arabic? What, I guess, before you got into the work and it sounds like you're connecting with, with folks in the community um, in that target language, but at the very beginning, kind of rewinding to the start of your language learning journey, what made you choose each of those languages? Well, for myself, when I first decided to get back into school and I went to Berkeley City College, I thought that the first thing I would wanna do is get a job um, in the foreign service possibly. And so I started studying international relations and I was taking French and Arabic. And so the first semester there, my Arabic professor mentioned that you can just go and get, or apply for private expat programs, you know, in the Middle East. And so my first semester there, that's what I did. And I studied in Egypt. And after that experience, I knew that I wanted to pursue the language learning uh, a lot more. And so, you know, just kind of snowballed from there. And I guess for me, Russian was completely an accident. Um, this was like 10 years back when I was getting my first bachelor's degree. Um, I studied abroad in the Czech Republic. And when I came back uh, to my university, like uh, they didn't offer Czech, but I had a language requirement. And so I decided to take up a different Slavic language, right? So I, that's mm. how I chose Russian. Um, and it was after living abroad, like I did my master's degree abroad. Um, I taught English in South Korea. And when I came back, you know, like my perspective on my worldview had essentially changed. And I decided, you know, I want to pursue, um, you know, government service career. And so I decided to go back to school to study Russian. Just in general, I feel like this is a life lesson. Everything seems so random as we're doing it, but then you look back and you're like, oh, wow, I can, you can connect the dots. You can, um, you know, the trajectory is there. So yeah, that's very cool. So 
we asked you about your bios and sort of tell us what you do, who you are. But what we also like to do here, since this is a diversity and inclusion themed podcast, and we want to talk specifically about um, those areas. We'd love to know who you are, you know, who is on the call with us. And so if you, and maybe the answers are the same, but we'd love to, to get a sense of sort of how do you define yourself? Uh, what are the identities that make up both of you um, in a couple sentences? And surely that answer changes depending on the context and we'll get into that, but would love to get a sense of sort of how you define yourselves. Well, I can say that um, I'm a woman of color. I'm a Korean American. I'm also an immigrant. I'm a first-generation college student, um, and uh, I'm trying to think of any of anything else. But I think that that's the big picture. And my pronouns are she, her, hers. I'm a man of color, um, and it, it is. It's a hard question. I was looking at the "Can you do it in one sentence?" and I didn't know if that's possible. But if I if I had to, I guess I would say someone who's a person who's in the middle. You know, not too mm. much of one anything, because I think I started thinking about that more after going to Morocco, about what it means, about what identity means in America, because here it's in Morocco, whether it's just a cultural term or whatever, people would call me brother a lot. And so no matter whether they thought I was Indian or black or whatever, they'd first say brother or, you know, something along those lines. But in America, it's very, we're always in a box kind of. And so you know, you're black, you're white, you're Asian, you're Indian, you're, you're something, but it's never just an American first. And so identity is, I think identity is a, a confusing question, maybe for myself being in this country. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I also think that my definition of it has expanded. And that's why we're really excited to talk to you both. Um, particularly about the work that you're doing with like community college transfers. But I feel like the definition of identity in this country has to be race. It has to be ethnicity, like sort of those, those outward markers, then religion, sort of the more, the more invisible ones, um, but still the big categories. And I think what I have learned in doing this podcast um, and, you know, in our talks, uh, Ashley and I talking together and not, stuff has been, the, the definition can be sister. I am a sister. I'm a reader. I'm, a, I'm from Rhode Island. And that like plays a larger part to my personality than I, I think I first understood. Like it's, it's all of those markers that we spoke about, um, the visual markers and the ways in which others might categorize us. But then it's these other things which don't, some people have said runner, I'm a runner, I'm a musician, whatever it is. Like those are equally as important parts to us. And so I feel like we are not really afforded the ability to bring those into the conversation, at least in America, when we're talking about our identities, it's just like, those aren't, that's not what we're getting at here. We're really getting at like, where are you from? You know? So, um, yeah, it's very complicated. And I think the definition changes as, as time goes on. Yeah. Um, and Jordan, you bring up a really good point as well. And I feel like it's the, the in the DEI community, diversity, equity, inclusion, like a big buzzword for 2020 was intersectionality um, and an important buzzword. And one that you like really bring to the forefront is that we are not just one identity, um, not just race, not just gender. Not, we are the intersections of all of those identities. Um, and that's what really makes us unique. So um yeah, I love I love that you kind of through the way you described it brought up the importance of that and and how that came to bear while you were abroad too. So, thank you for that. <laughs> and I realized that we didn't actually introduce global community college transfers. 
I would love to, and I, I know we won't talk about that exclusively, but I do think that that's a really interesting, if I can speak for you both, it, it is like one facet of your identity. I think you both said at one point, first generation college students. So would love to, maybe you can summarize that and then we can um, go into some of our other questions. But I think that, that introducing the organization will, will help us all in the conversation here. Well, I mean, this podcast is basically what GCCT is about. It's about inclusion and diversity and giving giving all of these different groups that are not necessarily represented the just the just the insight and giving because sometimes at community community colleges are great they they really are and there's a lot of great professors and a lot of great learning that goes on but sometimes it's just about knowing that mm. that resources are out there sometimes it's just whether whether you know it or not, sometimes going to a community college, you think you may not be able to do it because you're just getting an associates, you're just doing something that's maybe lesser than being at a four-year. And all of these stigmas, you know, can just be lifted with access and encouragement. Mm. That's really what the organization is about, showing that you can do things and you can travel and learn languages and do a lot with your life. Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. Typically, the way we ask this is we say, who are you? And then which parts of those identities changed or came to the forefront or were subdued in your abroad experiences? And I'm really curious, uh, maybe before we get to that, or maybe that will come up, like, what unique experiences did you all feel that you brought as community college students or people who have transferred from community colleges who've had those unique academic backgrounds? What what parts of your identity or experiences did you think were additive to you or maybe to the group as a whole on your CLS or any other international exchange programs? Was that an, or maybe that wasn't obvious at all. Maybe that wasn't significant to you, but would love to know more about how that, that played into it. I think being a, a non-traditional student, at least for myself, the having some of the, the experiences that I had had before going on CLS allowed me to feel, to feel comfortable abroad more so than more so than I would have in the past when I was younger. It allowed me to understand myself better. So I was able to feel comfortable in certain situations and conversations. And I think while I was out there, I was able to think about how I fit in in America also. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that that has a lot to do with being in, it does with being a non-traditional student, being a little bit older and a little more mature. I think it made mm-hmm. a huge difference. Yeah, I had a very similar experience. Like I was about 10 years older than most of the students that were in my CLS cohort. Wow. Um, But I I guess I would also want to say, like, I think, you know, part of my like success in applying to CLS and doing all this, you know, academic work was um, just having a strong pipeline, particularly in my community college and in my university. Um, It seems like, from what I have heard, like many community college students don't apply to CLS because they think that they can't get in. And then if they want to, they don't know who to turn to for resources, like checking over their essays or checking over their resume. And it's um, from my understanding, like CLS does want these community college students to apply. And people, you know, I think they are not applying just because they think they won't get in. I think that's completely false. Um, in my year, all of the entire community college cohort for um, CLS, the Russian language programs, all came from Portland Community College. Mm-hmm. So there were like three of us, and it's because we had a strong support system. And I just wish that kind of um, system was available in other 
community colleges. So you feel that it's sort of like a, almost a marketing and a, an advising kind of issue. Like there needs to be, and I don't know if this is a, I think the onus is on in large part on CLS. And I would love to know both of your thoughts on this. Like, I don't think, and we've had other people speak about this too, that CLS has done a good enough job historically in marketing and targeting like HBCUs, for example, Mm -hmm. surely not to your colleges, um, other, I mean, there's tons of other identities um, that I think are are not represented fully on these programs at all. And I get that um, it's difficult to penetrate those or, but I often feel that there's a tension inherent with these programs. They are very elitist and have to maintain, in, in maintaining that status, have to pull from certain places, which is very cynical. I don't think is necessarily accurate, but um, it seems like quite a problem to tackle. So I'm curious sort of what your thoughts are on that tension and also if how you see a solution like it sounds like it really is an issue of getting advisors who know information about this at community colleges to throw information at students and having CLS come to talk to these students and make an effort but would love to know if you if you thought about this and how what what a solution to that pipeline problem might be I guess because I've seen this sort of solution side of things it was having a Russian language professor who was just like, you ha- you guys have to apply. Like you guys mm-hmm. can get in, like you guys can do it. And it's building that confidence in there. And also she like individually looked over all of our essays because the, <laughs> the application for the CLS program wow. is a long one. I remember mm-hmm. there's like five essays or something like that. So just having someone who takes the time to you know, speak to us individually about submitting the best application possible and encouraging us, I think that was the biggest thing. Um, I think just in a sort of general picture sort of sense, like I guess someone can apply to this kind of study abroad program and not really understand where it might lead them next, right? Mm-hmm. So that sort of forward-looking advising, I think would be a factor that could motivate more community college students to apply to CLS. I think that's such a great point my Arabic professor, I remember asking her if I should apply to it. I, I heard about the application late and I remember talking to her and asking if it was a good idea. And she said, absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. it, everyone should be applying to this, just like Jessica said. And so, you know, Berkeley City College has a program to where you can take some of your classes at Cal Berkeley, which is just up the street. And when you go into their language departments, you see all the flyers for CLS and for Fulbright and Boren and, you know, you could easily just have, we could put those flyers up at Berkeley City College, but, you know, I have thought about it and I don't know what a solution is. I don't know why we just don't speak about it more. Maybe the expectations of ourselves and of our peers and students in community college, we don't know where to start. And so a lot can be done, I guess. I love something that you said, Jessica, and I wonder if this is something that even CLSAS could do a better job of, that we, we put a lot of stock into the orientation, but almost like a post or like a de-orientation or like a orientation back to the States. Like you've had your experience now, how is that going to factor into decisions you make in the future and in your four-year institution or your community college or wherever you are, kind of what are next steps now that you've been abroad? So that's really interesting. I think that would be something of great value. 
yeah, it seems like there's like this sort of tricky line between like CLS offering those types of resources and your college or university mm-hmm. advisor offering those resources because right. they are so like individualized for particular students, you know, whether you're an English major or studying astrophysics, you know, it's like, it's going to be your own personal right. path. But I do definitely think those types of resources would be helpful for students returning to uh, the States after CLS. Um, and you also mentioned, Jessica, uh, that you were 10 years older than everyone in your cohort. And I'm, I'm curious to ask both of you how the, the dynamics of your cohort were. Um, were there anyone else that had similar backgrounds to you? Um, I guess we've talked about this before on the podcast of, you know, how, the, how those cohorts were. But I'm curious to hear you all's experiences. So my I had a really diverse cohort. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were it was it was mostly it was mostly women, if I remember correctly, but uh, there was such a wide range of experiences and goals in the group, and it, it was a good thing. It was a good representation of of college students in America, I guess. Um, there were black students, white students, uh, gay, straight. Um, there was a lot of different different groups. One of my cohort members, he brought him. He brought a guitar with him. You know, he had his he had his hair dyed green, and you know everyone was wondering what his experience would be like. And he met a band out there, and he traveled a little bit with them, and went to a jazz bar and would play music. And you know, there was a lot of that's awesome experience wow. that happened. And so, yeah, diversity. It just showed how great diversity was. On your program, Jordan, were you the only one who had come from a community college? Who or did everyone go on a traditional sort of high school to four year? institution path everyone else was um either at a four-year or a grad student i don't think my cohort was quite as diverse as jordan's but i don't know if that was just you know just happened by chance based on whoever applied for russian that year um there were a few older students like myself um i remember one um student she was she had formerly served in the Peace Corps in Ukraine. Um, and so, and another student was also, um, gosh, I can't remember the name of the scholarship, but she was also um, linked with some kind of government service program too. But those were our older students. The rest of the students, I mean, I would just say we were all just kind of a friendly bunch uh, abroad in Bishkek. It's interesting to hear your perspective because I was the youngest one on my cohort. I was, I turned 20 in Jordan when I did CLS and thinking back at it, I'm like, whoa, ignorance was bliss. Like I didn't know what I was getting into. So I just went all in, um, which was like, I commend myself, but wow, wow, wow. I was so young. And there were a couple of people who were grad students and who were like late twenties and the dynamic, I was incredibly intimidated by them. They'd had more years of Arabic than me. They also were just much older and knew why they were there. And I don't know if, if that was your perspective, Jessica, but I, and I think you made a great point of you can go on these programs and let it, let the programs guide you to some unknown future. I feel like that is such an understated point here. Like I work in tech now. I don't do anything with Arabic. I'm trying to find ways to get back in. I'm continuing, continually trying to find a way to intersect all of my different interests, but I had no guidebook for what to do if you don't go into like a state department career. <laughs> like even you, Jordan, like STEM is not that common of, I mean, I don't have stats, but I don't think people really, that many people go into STEM from these languages. So I, yeah, it just, it's, it's very interesting to hear um, your perspective and to hear that 
even as you were older, you still were able to find connections with these people. Um, because I, I think there's so much value to being older and to having life experience and going on these programs. And I think like, I did not, I did not have the capability to take full advantage of it in a way that I would have, if I'd been, um, you know, late twenties or early thirties, or even two years later when I went to Morocco, I just had such a better sense of how to, um, like live there and be fulfilled and challenge myself and, and go beyond fear. So I think that that's really, really additive, um, to be older, but I can also see how that would present some challenges. If you're like, guys, there's certain things you got to do. Like you just, you have a little bit more wisdom, I think, and you have to watch the youngins like be stupid and make the mistakes. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's a very different perspective, but it sounds like it was overwhelmingly positive for you. I don't know how much you would want to share, but it, it sounds like you were, you were able to find connections with, with people despite those differences. Um, I guess to that, I would just mention one thing. I, I think um, it's studying abroad is just something you, you can't really predict what's going to happen. Mm. You know, I feel like 90% of us had that experience on CLS. And it's one of those experiences I think really changes people afterwards, right? Like, mm. you know, you'll have a different outlook or a different perspective or a completely new set of interests. And it's kind of impossible to uh, predict regardless of your sort of age or uh, group going into the program. Um, I would, I'd love to get back because I, I really like Jordan, when we were talking earlier about identity and navigating the host country, you know, with your identity and how it compared to how you navigate it here in the States. Um, we have a couple questions around that, but first I will, I will back it up to the, the very base question um, really that we center a lot of this podcast around is this idea of diversity and inclusion. And so we're curious to know what diversity and inclusion mean to each of you all. Another, another um, deep definition question for you. We, we gave you identity, now diversity and inclusion. Um, and then we want to hear more about how you navigated that in, in your host country. Well, to me, um, diversity and inclusion. I guess, I guess for me, the most important part of diversity is the, the different life experiences that we can all bring together. I mean, the obvious is how we all look. The most obvious is, you know, what we look like. And that's initially what I guess I think of when I think about diversity. But right after that, it's the life experiences and the different thoughts that we all bring to the table. And so being in being in Morocco was was eye-opening for a lot of reasons. I mean, one, my cohort members, seeing how they act out there and seeing their experiences mm -hmm. compared to mine, and then thinking about how different things are here and in America and then how similar they are. I think all of those together made me switch from international relations to STEM, mm -hmm. thinking about how much more I learned I, like, I know the way that I want to learn about people and learn about mm -hmm. the world. And ideally it's by traveling and speaking to people. And maybe I find less enjoyment with the, the academic side that we learn in school because it just has a certain flavor to it maybe that I, I, get, a, I get more fulfillment by just traveling and speaking to people. And I learned a lot. And so I think for me, that was very important. I guess I'll just start off by I think, you know, defining a diversity. It's 
I don't, I just don't think it's something you can generalize. Mm -hmm. And so um, I don't have a short answer for you, but maybe I'll go through sort of three different contexts in which I have thought about diversity. And I guess the first one was when I was abroad in, in CLS, like, or abroad in, in, in Bishkek or in Almaty, Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan. It's just, first of all, you know, encountering that country, you realize that they have a very different, they can have a different concept of diversity there based on, you know, how that country, uh, you know, what are their main languages, you know, what kinds of ethnicities reside there. And it just uh, made me think that diversity, even the definition itself is, can't be thought of in a singular way. Like diversity here in the States is just different from diversity in other countries. Um, the sort of second thing that I thought of, about in, in thinking about diversity in like the workforce here in the States, mm. as I'm thinking about my career is, um, you know, it's about people bringing a fresh perspectives, bringing different perspectives and finding new ways to, you know, solve problems with their sort of backgrounds that they bring. And so I don't think this is the best analogy, but I, I kind of think of it as, I don't know if you guys watch Star Trek, but like the United States is kind of like, you know, the board, like we have all these different people with different mm. skills and they can solve, you know, different problems in different ways. And so that's kind of how I think about things functioning here in the workforce. Um, and then the sort of yeah. third context is with my current job um, at the state of Oregon. And, you know, in serving a very particular role for a local government, um, respecting diversity for me means removing barrier, barriers to services that people mm. have the right to apply for and the right to receive. And in working with the public, it's, it's like, I, I don't want to assume that this person, you know, like, let's say has a car and can drive or has a telephone or has, um, you know, internet and electricity or can even represent themselves on their own behalf as a neurotypical person, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's just exposed me to more diversities than I, you know, I had ever experienced. And I guess to give um, an example, like this past week, um, we had an Oregonian come in who was hard of hearing and I had never interacted with this kind of mm -hmm. diverse population before. And so I, I actually just didn't know what to do when I, for, when he first, you know, came in person. And so we ended up communicating through pen and paper. Mm. Um, and then I gave him my email so that he wouldn't need to come in, you know, to the office again to resolve his issue. Right. So email was that other method of communication, but then it was finding out through email that when he said like, Oh, actually I can read lips. Okay. And then I realized during the pandemic, because we're all wearing our mm. masks, he couldn't read my lips. And so I didn't realize that there are these certain barriers mm -hmm. to receiving services that are built into our sort of bureaucratic processes. And I see my role as, um, you know, removing those barriers, barriers to service um, and to connect people as quickly as they can to a certain person or to a certain um, problem. And it's, I think, <laughs> sorry, I'm going on and on, but- No, this is awesome. A, a learning experience because I realize, you know, the office offers ASL translators and things, you know, and other services for deaf and hard of hearing folks. But for an, to order an ASL translator, it has to be done over video. It takes two days to order that service. And it's like, 
well, you know, in that situation, it was easier for me to use pen and paper and email to communicate with him. Right. And then I thought, what's going to happen the next time someone who is deaf and hard of hearing comes into the office. And so um, for myself personally, I just learned um, how to sign, uh, like, can you read lips, you know, and how to sign, like, um, are you deaf or hard of hearing? And I just realized, you know, that's something that I can do personally mm. that is going to re- help these p- people receive better services. And now you're learning another language on yeah. the job too. Yeah, Look at exactly. That. <laughs> it's so, I mean, you brought up so, both of you brought up so many good things. I love the idea. And I, I feel this as well, that divert, the definition of diversity and its purpose almost change depending on the context. Mm. And our next question was going to be sort of what was your perception of diversity and inclusion in your in the countries that you went to for CLS but I think you gave a really good example about how we don't have to go to Kazakhstan or Morocco or Russia to um, experience the importance and the purpose of creating diverse and inclusive spaces and so I would I would really I think that's just a really good reminder to everyone um, that it could be at your on your work team like Clearly, I think we've all seen that over the last year of how businesses are trying and failing to like be more inclusive. Um, but I would, I think we'd love to get a sense of if you have any of those other stories of, of um, sort of specific encounters you might've had with your own difference or maybe a more meta conversation of people in your host countries talking about this topic or things you saw of the ways in which rules or cities or communities were or were not inclusive. And I think what we don't want to do is like, shit on the countries that we went to that's not our purpose I think we've learned like you said Jordan we have learned that other countries do things way way better than we do in terms of diversity and inclusion in a lot of ways but also that there are room there's room for growth in all of these places including America um so I would love to get a sense of if there are any specific examples that come to mind if there's something you experienced or something that you watched other people experience I think Jessica you gave a great example of something that happened to you really recently um but to, to bring it more to the international, like, you know, out of America context, I don't know if anything sort of has resonated or stuck with you from your time abroad. I specifically remember talking to my language partners about every Friday, our group would have a meeting with our resident director and she would bring up questions about how do we feel in this country based on who we are and there we have we had little workshops like that she she was really great at her job wow that's amazing yeah she 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 did a lot of good things for us which in hindsight now i'm sure maybe we all see but um i remember talking to my language partner about what the term minority means to him and who the minorities are in morocco and to him it was just a completely foreign and ridiculous concept the Mm -hmm. the idea of a minority just maybe my Arabic just wasn't good enough to, <laughs> to, you know, get that point across, but he, he couldn't understand the concept that I was talking about. And I think in America, we're very, it's just natural to us that we see and feel racism or what we, what some people will call institutional racism. You know, here it's just so ingrained that it's a part of the structure. It's a part of life. And I, I would walk past this church and see these Africans, immigrants, and they would all hang out in the church after dark, basically like they were sleeping there in the church. And I remember asking my, my language partner why they're there. And he was like, I don't know, maybe they just don't have a home. And then 
I'm thinking, okay, but why? Why is it only them? You know, ask basically trying to ask him what the the race situation is like out there. And you know, to him, he maybe he just doesn't think about it. He was like, I don't know. Maybe it's they like it there. You know, and so I we all all of these places experience the same things. Mm-hmm. I think it's just how we notice them and how we respond to them that makes our countries what they are. Yeah. And you bring up such a good point that I think is is critical for folks that go on these kind of abroad experiences to realize too that that it is more nuanced and what you are seeing and experiencing in the country just like coming here and if you talk to one person they'll have one opinion about something and another person will have more context um, around kind of the causes but I think there's um there's a tendency to say oh well you know Morocco doesn't have a race problem because I talked to my language partner and they said it's all good so I, I I love that you know you were able to go over there with a critical eye and pick that out and I think that kind of when people are coming back from these experiences I think it's um critical to deconstruct your experiences over there um because you do go through such a whirlwind when you're abroad so really deconstructing and I I think you know your experience with that and analyzing that is is critical so I I hope folks listening can really take that away to really be mindful of that when when going abroad to get lots of different perspectives and and question those perspectives as well I just want to correct something that I said I when I said when I said Africans I met people from sub-Saharan Africa who look mm-hmm. like not from North Africa because that's also a, a thing that is sort of prominent out there. People, some people will say we were all black men at some point in North Africa, or some people will say, you know, there's there's Africans and then there's North Africans, or there's Arabs and then there's Black Africans, and so, you know, that's not my country. That's not. I can't really speak to that, but that's what I meant mm-hmm. when I said Africans. Yeah, that's definitely a good distinction. Um, I think, Jordan, what you said is so interesting, too, about how, like, because this one guy was like, I don't know what they're doing in the church does not mean that Morocco does not have racism. And it, mm-hmm. it sort of strikes me that, yes, we have so much bad stuff and like a really, really stained, violent history in this country that has continued to today and, you know, all the ways that we could discuss it forever. But I do think that one thing that America, for better or worse, is working on is having like terminology to talk about this. And I think that diversity and inclusion has become this like capitalized, like marketing sort of tool. But the idea that we have, I don't think boxes are inherently good. Categories are inherently good, but I do think that having language to not categorize, but be able to like identify certain things and say this group of people deal with like I feel like that one person's reticence which again is not all Moroccans is maybe just this guy he didn't know like Ashley said people learn things at different points but I think the fact that we are here talking about this that this is something that is at the forefront of our society um over the last what many many decades centuries um but particularly in the last few years I feel like has really taken off I I think it's a good thing and I think that other countries maybe don't use the same if we're talking about language like don't have the same language to talk about these things so in such a meta, um, like systemic way. Did either of you feel when you were abroad that you encountered situations of covering where you felt that you had to hide certain aspects of your identity or did you feel free to sort of embody your most authentic self when you were over there? Well, I can bring up a sort of uh, funny story just Okay, so I'm, you know, ethnically Korean. I very much look 
ethnically Korean, you know, and in the States, I would say based on just appearance, I just tick off that Asian American box. But when I went over to Bishkek and Kazakhstan, um, Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, like so for some reason, somehow hmm. people just knew upon seeing me that I was Korean as opposed to Chinese or Japanese or a different yeah. East Asian ethnicity. Right. And it was just a sort of funny um, experience because wow. they'd see that and then I, you know, open my mouth and they'd realize, oh, she's an American. Right. Mm. Um, but then they're like, oh, but you're Korean. I have my best friend is Korean. Right. So you're just like my best friend. I'm going to invite you to tea and we're going to hang out. So <laughs> it was a very sort of uh, it was a very nice experience. Just think about, um, mm. I guess, my ethnic identity in that way and how it works in that country. That's interesting. And yet again, I'd like, I'm, I'm curious to know kind of if there's historical ties at play or, or you know, what causes that to be the, the way that it is. To my understanding, there is a large Korean diaspora mm. in Central Asia, like Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, maybe some of the other stands as well. Um, they, I don't remember this accurately, but they were brought over during um, the, the Soviet period and forcibly, forcibly moved to Central Asia. From what I have seen, they have developed a pretty good relationship with locals and, you know, more or less fully integrated into society. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that context. I appreciate it. Hmm. Did you know going into um, Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan that that was sort of the historical context? Like where it seems like being identified as Korean was, I imagine, was a very disconcerting experience, at least at first, although it sounds like it became enjoyable. But was that something that you had anticipated? No, I had no idea. <laughs> I mean, I knew about the Koreans in Russia. I think the, the Sakhalin Koreans. Um, I think that, well, I can't really speak a lot about them, but I knew about them, but I didn't know about them in Central Asia. So there was just like this, like, oh my gosh, how did you know I was Korean sort of thing? It's like being seen, like being, it's so, that's so interesting. Wow. Yeah. I just wanted to say we also had a, one of my cohort members was half Japanese, half black. And my, my host mom would always ask us, how's the Japanese girl doing? And And we'd say, well, she's American, but she's doing great. And she'd be like, yeah, but I mean the Japanese girl. You know, it's funny how other people perceive Americans as opposed to how we, you know, it's just interesting. I mean, that does bring up an interesting point. And I'm curious as someone who identifies as African-American, did you like, was, is your perception that Moroccans, I guess, I don't want to generalize, but like, do you think that they were thinking of Americans as just a white blonde American and everyone else sort of didn't fit that? And so they were trying to dig deeper to figure out their their like racial ethnic makeup, like as a black American, did anyone think you were American or did, were people like, you must be from somewhere else? Sort of what was, what was their experience with you in that regard? Um, it was definitely the, you must be from somewhere else because yeah, okay. when I would do my best to try not to speak English, when I first got there, I would speak horrible Arabic to everyone. And so they thought that I was either from a different Arab speaking country, Arabic speaking country, and I was speaking a dialect they couldn't understand or you know something some there was some miscommunication going on and then i'd be like well i just don't speak very well they're (laughs) like we've never heard this arabic dialect before (laughs) and so by by the end of it they you know people were just 
thinking that I would tell a story and say, oh, I'm from, usually I'd say Cairo because I'd been there before and I'd say, I'm from this city. And then I try and start a conversation that way. Sometimes it would work more often than not, it would work. And then I'd say I'm American and they'd be surprised by that. And so. So I think I've said this on the podcast before too. I don't know if this is just a common experience or if this, I think everyone gets asked like, where are you from? If you are American traveling abroad and people just like really grill you in a way that they don't in the States. Cause it's one of the like, do not ask topics. Mm-hmm. But I similarly had my story where I was like, they thought I was, um, Arab, but not Moroccan. So they were like, she's from the East, like Jordanian or Syrian or something. And so I would say, I came up with my whole story. Cause I was like, I'd been, I lived in Jordan. So I could use that. I could like name streets if they were like, where are you from? And I had my whole sort of narrative crafted. It fell apart like very quickly when they would start to ask me like any more beyond one or two questions. But, um, it's sort of, it's, it's kind of a joke, but it was also sort of a defense mechanism. It was sort of like a protection in some ways. It was a way to try to um, get yourself into converse, get myself into conversations that otherwise I might not have been in. And um, yeah, I, I've talked to a lot of people, both who've studied in the Arab world and not that you, you just craft these identities sort of as, uh, yeah. And for better or worse. And so that that's, um, I'm not surprised that that was something you also did. Yeah. I, those experiences may have been good for me, but I'm sure there was other people in my program that had the same experience that was horrible. Yeah. I, in a country like that, I benefit from being brown skin, looking like I could be from a lot of places and being male. So all those things work in my favor. And so I can't, I'm not going to generalize and say that that's, you know, there's a lot of people who had different experience. Yeah. Yeah, we've actually talked about that with someone uh, with people before. I think our former producer, Sana, talked about that, like the exhaustion that comes from having to continue to tell your story and to um, sort of just end up saying, you know what? Yes, I am from, I am Vietnamese, but actually I'm Hmong or whatever, like her her experience was. And you just end up saying yes, because you're so tired of it. Mm. And um, I think that's a really good point you make, like for, me, for many, many people, that is not a fun experience to have to weave those narratives and like play games. Um, and that that is just like exhausting at best, but. Yeah, and as a follow-up yeah, yeah. to that, I'm, I'm curious to know, did you find that crafting those narratives was done more so for um, kind of self-protection and, and not having to continually explain your identity? Or did you find that there was some amount of like societal clout to not be associated with being from America. Like, I'm curious sort of the, the politics behind all of that. Yeah, I initially did it to practice, practice saying different things. But then I realized that there were certain groups of people who it works better with just to say that I was American. <laughs> younger, the younger generations, closer to my age that I would meet, you know, young guys on the street who were just hanging out. If I say I'm from America, it would be better sometimes. They'd be like, whoa, America, like, I got Instagram too, add me. Or like, add me on Facebook. And then that conversation gets yeah. started. But with, you know, with different people, you know, making up a story work better. So mm. it was sort of hit or miss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. That's interesting. We would love to know more generally. I mean, we've had so many conversations in this one conversation, very jam-packed. We'd love to get a sense of from CLS and beyond, um, how has living abroad, um, immersing yourself in these languages and cultures changed the way that you specifically view race, colorism, um, difference? It sounds like um, 
Jessica, you gave that great story about just like, I don't know if you tied it back necessarily to your abroad experience, but this idea that it changes your perception of how we can accommodate and include others mm-hmm. in our own lives day to day in our, in our work lives and our, our neighborhoods, whatever. But I would love, would love to have you both expand on that and sort of how did specifically these abroad experiences change your perception of, of race and diversity and its importance? I guess, first of all, it made me realize that race relations in the States are a very, it's, very own particular thing. And it's based off of our history, um, our uh, groups of people that are living here. And it's not something that is shared necessarily by other countries. Mm. And that includes like our ideas of progress and what we can do to, let's say, overcome certain barriers when it comes to these race relations. And so, um, gosh, like it made me think that you know, we as Americans, I, I think it's wrong of us to impose our ideas of progress, mm-hmm. um, even in this area of diversity upon other countries. Like everyone is coming from, you know, every country, I guess, is coming from a different place. They have their own history. And it's, gosh, I, I just see it as wrong to sort of impose a certain, you know, system of like gender relations on, let's say, a um, on a different country. So that, that was my biggest takeaway in working with them because we can be super progressive and things like that. But if it's kind of, if it results being sort of oppressive to mm-hmm. another, then it's, you know, I think it defeats the purpose. I came back to the States feeling uh, more isolated from any, any particular group than I felt when I left, mm-hmm. you know, coming, I, like, like Jessica said, we have our, our very, it's a very particular brand and flavor of, of, what we consider race talks and diversity and inclusion here. And so um, I think I think I left with the sense that I'm a being a, a mixed race individual from America makes me a very unique uh, person in this world. And so I just need to keep that in mind as I'm interacting with everyone else, whether that's Americans or foreigners. And I don't know. I think it, I think it's serving me well, but mm. just left me with more questions than answers. I guess I could say coming, coming home. If I've learned anything, I feel like the, the more I learned, the, the, the less I know, if that makes sense, the more I learn, the more I realize how little I know. And I feel like that's a good conclusion to come away from these experiences. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Two more questions. We typically ask, um, like, advice to POCs or people from underrepresented, underrepresented minorities. I think specifically, I would like to know if there's advice that you have for first-gen students, community college transfers who might be interested in these experiences, who might be ready to getting ready to go off, sort of what were some pieces of advice that you wish you'd heard or things that you, you learned from those experiences? I would just say to have confidence in who you are as an individual. You know, it's hard to be who you want to be and who you really are here. And if, you know, if you leave here without being grounded in that, it'll be even harder somewhere else. Mm. So, you know, we all learn things at our own pace, but just to be confident and that will help with self-awareness and every other problem that we seem to have. I definitely second that piece of advice, like be confident. Um, I would also mention, especially for POCs, like, if you're you know, abroad with your cohort and you sense that you are having a different experience from the rest of your cohort, like you can definitely acknowledge that you are. Like mm-hmm. it's just having that 
a different experience and it's possible that no one else in your cohort will necessarily be able to um, talk to you about it. Yeah. I love that. Instead of just trying to swallow it or ignore it or push it away, like bubble it up to the surface and yeah. Although that can be, I imagine that can be quite difficult if you don't feel that there's anyone who can catch it or support it, but I guess the beginning battle is to vocalize it. Um, and with that being said, sort of, it sounds like this is um, one reason why you all wanted to do global community college transfers uh, um, to provide that support, to provide the space that when people vocalize things, you can sort of catch them and catch catch their identities and where they're at. Um, would love to to have you guys plug the organization and talk about anything sort of, it sounds like you got a podcast coming maybe, but anything else um, in the works that you'd love to, to plug and then we'll, we'll add it to the show notes. We are starting a new website soon. Uh, we're going to have that set up soon. I wish I could give more information on that right now, but it's still in the works. We're working on more workshops and seminars that will be about individual programs like Fulbright and Board and transferring and just general general help seminars that will give content, context, stories to community college students. I guess for myself, I'm a student mentor and a three by three by three mentor program and we're just finishing up our first cycle. And I decided to be a mentor specifically thinking about my CLS application experience of helping other you know, students possibly with their um, you know, study abroad applications and things like that. So to my understanding, I think it will continue and it's open to uh, community college students. Just wanted to give a shout out to one of our mentees, Christina, who just got awarded CLS scholarship in Korea. So also oh. community college in Pasadena. So. What a good way to end this. Oh. Congrats. That's am that's really, really amazing. Yeah. Okay. Any any of the support that you're um providing, I think is is huge. And I think you are um single-handedly changing the landscape of CLS mm -hmm. and the direction that it's headed and um CLS and, and these other scholarships. So I think all I can speak for everyone that we are eternally grateful and I hope that the, the future of these programs looks very different. I just want to say I, I would really love to see more diversity in CLS and you know I think it you know starts from each one of us. Thanks so much everybody for listening to our podcast today. We want to give a special shout out and thanks to CLSAS and CLS Ambassadors for supporting this programming. And if you guys want to learn more about CLS or CLSAS or be on future episodes of the podcast, go to clsas.org and then the media tab. And thank you listeners and participants of the pod for being open-minded and willing to jump into these tough but important conversations.